Is that Matt? Hey, what's up? You're doing some shoveling, huh? We're shoveling the snow for you. I like it. It's a couple of days after a big, old-fashioned Cleveland snowstorm, the kind that dumps a foot or more of snow on the entire city. Yes, even here on the west side. That's an inside joke for us Clevelanders. And it's pretty and sparkly, but also a big old pain in the neck. Fortunately, in this case, Matt Zone, the former councilman for my neighborhood, is here to help out. We're meeting at his invitation outside a small stucco-sided building with the flags of Italy and the United States out front. Once Matt clears a path for me on the sidewalk and tosses his shovel back in his car, we step inside. We're here in the neighborhood Veterans Club. It was originally called the Neighborhood Veterans of World War II, and then eventually it changed to be accepting and inclusive of more individuals. How many members are there, would you say? About 89 right now. That's Frank D'Onofrio, the club manager. He's in his 70s, a generation or so older than Matt, and he lives across the street. Then you have these pictures here. How many pictures would you say there are? Like 100 maybe? There's 25 to a frame. I think there's at least 200. Yeah. All over the walls are framed black and white photographs of Italian-American soldiers. Formally dressed guys with neatly parted hair who lived in the neighborhood and served in World War II. On one side is a worn wooden bar that looks like it dates from the 1940s. And the air smells like last night's cigarette smoke. What do you guys do? Like well, a couple of things. First of all, you come in here on a Saturday, everybody brings food. I mean, this place is a heart attack waiting to happen. All kinds of Italian food, American food. It's all over the place. The older guys are sitting at that first table over there playing a, 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 a game called 66. It's been in the neighborhood forever. Another group might be at this table over here with the chips on it playing poker. And then you'll see a number of them just sitting around talking the same old stories, although now we talk about the pills we're on as opposed to uh, the girls that we met. A word of warning in case all that sounds appealing, don't just show up here expecting to partake. You have to be male, which is probably obvious by now, and invited by a member. And Matt Zone says he brought me here today because he wants people to understand where this neighborhood has come from, the hardworking immigrants who built it, and the decades of equally hard work it took to get it where it is now. When people say, well, the neighborhood's rapidly gentrified, and wait a minute, I lived through 30 plus years of just blight and nothing but poverty in our community. And we worked very hard with great intentionality to make sure that we lifted up all people and maintain a mixed income community. I'm very proud of that work. On this episode, what do this neighborhood's leaders say about whether gentrification is a concern here? And do they think the mix of incomes and people that exist here now can be preserved? Matt Zone says in his time as councilman between 2002 and 2020, he helped bring $40 million in low-income housing to the neighborhood. That amounts to hundreds of units, much of it right in the busiest section with the most shops along Detroit Avenue, the place I was hanging out with Natalia Garcia in the last episode. Remember the window shopping with the blue trolls? I can't underscore enough. Low-income and historic tax credit 
projects that brought on 250 units of affordable housing all along Detroit Avenue. Some of the most elegant and beautiful buildings on Detroit Avenue, people don't realize, they're low-income, heavily subsidized housing because we wanted to maintain a mixed-income community. He also points to two buildings for homeless people that opened under his watch. Admittedly, a bit farther from the center, but still, he says they were projects that two other neighborhoods chased out. That, he says, was on top of overseeing a lot of investments in streetscapes and parks and public art that helped the private market recover, too. So, Matt, I hear a little, I don't know what the right term is for the emotion. Uh, Anger might be too strong, but... Frustration. Frustration. That's a good one. Like, is that something you hear a lot? Do people come at you with that a lot, that gentrification is happening and no one cares? Yeah, you know, I had used to have this tagline in my newsletter, Justin, that I printed. It would say, pride in our past, faith in our future. If you don't have perspective on where you came from, it's hard to know where you want to go individually as a person or as a community. And it is frustrating for me to hear people opine on social media, you know, the keyboard warriors who, you know, the hipster who was educated and grew up in Avon and went to an Ivy League college. Avon, that's a predominantly white suburb about 20 miles west of Cleveland. It'll come up a few times in this series. And all of a sudden now they're woke and they come into the neighborhood and said, oh, we need to do more for poor people. Well, I've lived my whole life with poor people. I've worked my entire life to help support poor people. And it's typically people who are newer, who just moved to the neighborhood. Oh, this place is too uh, unattainable. I can't afford to live there. Well, they don't know what it's like when the average price of a house in 2002 was $16,000 and that there was nothing here. So for those of us who've lived a lifetime in this neighborhood, we look at this as a a real renaissance that should be cherished and protected. And we want to maintain that mixed income uh, makeup of our community long term into the future. Part of what I'm thinking about as you're talking are themes that have already come up a couple times in this series, which is who has the right to live in this neighborhood and who has a right to an opinion about what happens here. Like in your view, do those Ivy League kids from Avon not have a right to complain? When I think of the, the broad question about who has a right to live in our community, I look at it through the lens of if you're a good person and you're contributing to our community and our society, we want you in our neighborhood. I'm extremely proud. When you look across our city, we have 34 neighborhoods. But if you look at Detroit Chory or even the sub-neighborhood of Detroit Chory in Gordon Square. Gordon Square, as a refresher, that's one of the names for the part of the neighborhood where I live. And you look at uh, that, that little sub-neighborhood of, of Detroit Shoreway, it is arguably the most diverse neighborhood in the entire city of Cleveland. We accept and love all. 26% of the population is African-American. 24% Hispanic, 2% Asian. We proudly have the LGBT center right there on Detroit Avenue. We proudly have permanent affordable housing for homeless people right there on Detroit Avenue. We welcome all. If you want to contribute in a positive manner to our community, in a non-judgmental way, you're welcomed. But for those who come in here and, and, and try to 
articulate an opinion without understanding the perspective and the history and the struggles of a community, that's when I tend to lose a little patience. Uh, I still love them, uh, but I lose a little patience without people really truly understanding the struggles uh, of a generation. So contributing, what does that mean to you to contribute? Contributing is, you know, we, we, we built a community where we want people to live, work, and play in the same neighborhood. In my mind, that's a contributing member of the community. They live in the community, they work in the community. Even if you don't work in the community and you have to commute by car, there are other ways you can contribute to the community. A member of your block club, you know, a member of your local development corporation, helping shovel snow for the senior citizen who's shut in and lives next door to you, that's the utopia for me. Matt Zone says he does have some concerns about house flipping and speculating in the neighborhood. He says in some ways it's a higher income, higher price version of what was happening when he first became councilman in the early 2000s. Back then, absentee landlords were milking broken down houses for all they were worth. And then as the neighborhood started to get healthy, now we have a whole set of new characters who are vultures preying on our community. They're speculating. They're trying to make a quick buck. So it's evolving. It's changing. The neighborhood is getting healthier. We still have our struggles, but we're far better today than we were 40 years ago, even 20 years ago. So that brings up what for me is the central question of this podcast, which is, can the neighborhood last as it is where it's truly mixed income? Or is this just a stopping point on the way toward becoming a fancy lakefront enclave? I think that the mixed income community can continue. I know that the current council lady, Jenny Spencer, is laser focused on this issue. You know, long term residents like myself are going to hold not only her accountable, but developers and others accountable to make sure that we truly build the community that we want to continue to live in. And Matt, for you, is it important to keep it mixed income? Absolutely. In my mind, I think it's essential. Uh, Again, my training and my background in urban planning, the strongest neighborhoods, not only in our country, but in the world, our mixed income communities. That is why when you even look at Battery Park, there was talk, people wanted a a gated community. Another refresher, Battery Park is a new neighborhood of high-end townhouses and apartments on the site of a former battery factory. They wanted a fancy wall, like no. That development is gonna be integrated in the existing fabric of the street grid. We're gonna maintain our, our, our community. So, you know, I wanna see us continue working in that regard. I want to see us um, working tremendously hard to make sure that all people feel valued and welcome in our community. As Matt Zone mentioned, Jenny Spencer is the current council person for my neighborhood, which is officially called Ward 15. The woman, he said, had a laser focus on maintaining a mixed-income community here. She and I met up to talk about that while doing something we both love, wandering the streets, nerding out about well-known and not-so-well-known landmarks. Pretty great, right? FW 1925, presumably. Right now, we're standing under a narrow stone railroad overpass that feels like it could be a secret passageway to another realm, gazing up at some old graffiti carved into the ceiling initials and dates. And what I think is interesting is it hasn't been covered over or like re 
chiseled or re-chiseled. Yeah. Once we get past our graffiti gazing, I get down to business by asking Jenny a really open-ended question. She hears from more people in this neighborhood more often than just about anybody else. Before I go down the path of asking about expensive housing and whether the neighborhood is becoming a rich enclave, are those concerns that are top of mind for the people that live here, or am I way off base? By the way, this interview also happened in the middle of winter, like the one I did with Matt Zone, so you're going to hear lots of icy footsteps and the swishing of our winter coats. I think housing is one of the most important and biggest ones because I get some really poignant calls, I got this really interesting call from this this lovely, lovely woman who is in the Cadell neighborhood and she keeps seeing investors kind of snatch up property. And this is not even in what you would think of as a hotter market part of Ward 15. And she said, you know, my family's been here a long time. We've, lo- we've been renting. We'd love to buy a house. Can you help me do that? Jenny says she does her best to connect people like that caller to resident programs that could help. For example, a lease purchase program that allows people to move into a house as renters, build up equity, and then have the option to buy after 15 years. We'll hear more about that program in a future episode. The bottom line is people want to be here because it's a diverse mixed income community. And everyone's kind of experiencing change viscerally and experiencing in their day to day. Some people already understand that are asking the question, are there public policy tools that we should be using to keep our neighborhood diverse and mixed income? Because I think housing price points has everything to do with a neighborhood's diversity and the ability for family members or families of different means to, to thrive and to be here. She says one especially hot topic in her brief time on council has been tax abatement. It's a city program where people who buy new or renovated houses don't have to pay any property taxes for 15 years. Purpose of the tool was to create a market. Yeah. And that tool is still very much needed in in most parts of Cleveland. What I'm hearing from folks here is it served its purpose. It had it allowed investment to start flowing into the neighborhood. We need to pump the brakes a little bit because not on investment per se, but we need to slow the pace. Did you hear that car whizzing by? What a great moment of synchronicity, right? Because what happens when markets get so heated, what longtime residents are saying is overheated markets mean that I can't afford to stay in my own home. Basically, Jenny Spencer says, in our neighborhood, tax abatement is subsidizing high-income people to buy high-end houses. Back in the 1990s, when the program got started and houses were going for $16,000, as Matt Zone told me, We needed incentives like that to bring back a functioning real estate market. Now, not so much. Meanwhile, people who've lived in the neighborhood for decades, they don't get tax abatement. So their taxes go up, exponentially in some cases, because of all the subsidized high-end housing that's being built. Not long after we recorded this interview, City Council approved some changes to that tax abatement program. The changes dial back the incentives for market rate neighborhoods like mine while keeping them fully in place for the many parts of Cleveland that are struggling to attract buyers. Another potential solution to help keep people in place, Jenny says, is something called Longtime Owner Occupant Program. And basically, what that means is if you've lived in your house for X number of years, even if property values around you increase by a certain percent, 
the percent, percentage by which your valuation could increase is capped. But that is easier said than done. The state of Ohio would have to pass a law allowing the city of Cleveland to start a program like that. And in our Republican-dominated, pro-development state legislature, that will be a heavy lift. And so there are tools. They're just all of them are a project and all of them require diligence. And that's a big part of what I'm interested in working on. At this point in the walk, Jenny and I find ourselves in Edgewater Park, the lakefront park we talked about in the last episode. The lake and the open space and trails just seem to act like a magnet, even when they're covered in a crust of ice and snow. As Jenny looks out over that vista, I can almost see the inspiration strike her. I can definitely hear it as she breaks down for me her motivation for doing this job. So here, here's what's so, here's a big reason I'm so inspired to, to serve Ward 15. Because if you look at, if you look at this part of Cleveland, I'm sitting here to myself thinking, if we can't figure out how to create an equitable community where everyone can thrive, no one can. Because if you look at what we have going on, we are two miles west of downtown. We have lakefront access. We have amazing transit access. We have, for the first time, families are telling me, I don't have to move to give my kid a great education. This is pretty new. I mean, right, yeah. for decades, right? Yeah. People were mass exodus from Cleveland because of education. And for the first time, people are saying we ha- there's plenty of choices. There are enough choices. I'm sitting here thinking we have all the elements of an equitable community where people of all means and backgrounds can really raise their families and thrive. And we've got to solve this housing piece because for people to have access to all those wonderful things, you have to have, you can't have housing insecurity. Like, I guess, my, yeah, yes. so how, if you were to try to, I mean, I think you just did, but like, if you were to kind of articulate, like, well, why should we, why shouldn't we just let Detroit Shoreway or certain parts of Detroit Shoreway, like, become just really fancy? <laughs> like, why is, yeah. that, why is that a problem? Like, how would you answer that? Well, that's a pretty, I think a, there's a really, values-driven way to answer that question, which is, I think, perhaps the most important way to answer that question, which is, I know for sure that I'm the person I want to be because I live in a diverse neighborhood. This is such a diverse country. You can't, and yet so many of us live in places without difference. We, we kind of all gravitate towards places where we're all, always in our comfort zones. And I think there's a big picture of what would the United States look like if more of us lived in diverse communities? Somehow we're fearful of each other, and it's you don't get out of that. You don't escape from that unless you meet people who are different than yourself. Jenny also points to the many studies that show that when poor people live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, there's a much greater chance they'll stay poor than if they lived in a mixed-income neighborhood. Those studies, by the way, are why the U.S. government only gives new construction money for public housing projects to neighborhoods that offer a mix of income levels. It's like, how do I reach my goals? It's through community connection networks. Talking to other people, hearing about job opportunities, having job opportunities, and functioning businesses within the neighborhood. So I think that mixed income communities means that it's good for me as a human, it's good for networks for all of us.
For me, Jenny nailed a lot of why I love living here and why it feels so important for the mix that exists now to remain. It's rare and therefore precious. According to the community development nonprofit Shelter Force, only about 7% of Americans live in mixed income neighborhoods where they also tend to have a lot of opportunities. At the same time, the percentage of poor people living in high poverty areas is growing with all the challenges that presents for people's financial, physical, and mental health. So when I hear things like what you're about to hear from this next guy, who basically along with Jenny Spencer is the closest thing to being the mayor of this neighborhood as you can get, I become a little concerned. I can tell you personally, uh, my boyfriend and I are looking for a possible place to buy in the neighborhood here in Detroit Shoreway, and there's nothing that I can really afford myself. Adam Stalder is the director of Northwest Neighborhoods. That's the nonprofit development organization that represents my neighborhood and others around it. He has the job Jenny Spencer had up until she became councilperson. I spoke to him via Zoom during a spike in coronavirus cases. Adam is quick to amend his statement that there's nothing here he can afford by saying there are a lot of places he could afford that are not in the heart of the neighborhood. But those places tend to be fixer-uppers, which he doesn't have the time or resources to take on. He sees a similar situation for renters, where there's a lot of supply at the high end and the low end, but not much in between. We have affordable units. We have luxury units popping up everywhere, it seems. But just the normal rent that, that a normal person with a normal job can afford. There's a middle missing. This community should be a place where anybody who wants to live here can. And there should be housing choices for everybody. Like Matt Zone and Jenny Spencer, Adam Stalder believes it is possible to preserve, or maybe restore, affordability in the hot parts of the neighborhood. For example, he brings up this tool called Community Benefits Agreements. It's where cities get developers to commit to giving back to the community, essentially, along with building their fancy apartments by doing things like hiring local people to build the project or contributing money to affordable housing on another site or building a new park. Uh, other cities require it. I'm not sure if our market is strong enough to require it, but the city certainly has the tools. Tools like tax abatement or subsidized infrastructure. Hey, you want tax abatement or new streets and sewers for your new townhouses? Give this neighborhood something in return. It's still kind of new in Cleveland, but something that we're certainly interested in. He also mentions a cool idea dreamed up by a woman named Jessica Trevisano, who at the time was on his staff, but now works for the mayor's office. Her idea was developers usually come up with their own plans, then present them to neighborhood groups who are often resistant because they weren't involved in the planning. What if we flip that script by identifying sites that will probably be snapped up soon and meet with neighbors and block clubs to ask what they want to see there before they get bought? And she just presented like, hey, this is what this property zoned. This is theoretically what could be built. What do you want to see? What, what is important to you? Affordability, new bike trails, green space. Those thoughts are then recorded and presented to developers who are interested in the site. The carrot is, if the developer tries to accommodate at least some of those wishes in the plan it puts forward, that plan probably gets a lot friendlier reception from residents who might otherwise try to stand in the way. And that means an easier time getting through approvals from the city. Adam says he wants to keep trying new ideas like that, because even though his organization, Northwest Neighborhoods, has a proud history. We really haven't done anything too innovative in a while. 
So I'm excited about the possibilities of what we can do and what we can do as this neighborhood continues to change around us to ensure that it's a place where everybody can live. So it seems like there's a will among the neighborhood's leaders to preserve the mix of people that makes this place unique. And just as important, a belief that preserving that mix is possible. But what about the residents themselves? Are they feeling that same way? Next time, an honest conversation among neighbors. Plus, I talked to two former residents who sold their houses about why they decided to leave and how they feel about it. That's on the next episode of Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production are by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton with additional music from Ketza, Robin Allender, Popoy, and Pictures of the Floating World from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash inside the bricks, where you can see photos and sign up for behind the scenes newsletters and fill out a survey to give us your thoughts on this series. Until next time.